If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, or a way to see God's Word, turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. Well, this past week, uh, some of you uh, are probably worn slap out who were part of this last week, but uh, we did have vacation Bible school last week, and it was by far one of the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, vacation Bible schools we've ever had. And y'all, it went very smoothly. I mean, God just kind of showed up in many places. And uh, right now, those of you who worked, who were a volunteer in some aspect of vacation Bible school, and you're here, would you please stand, please? Uh, we really want to acknowledge you guys. There's several. Yeah, let's give them a round of applause. Man, I tell you, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how many times I come across people when I ask them their story, they were saved in vacation Bible school as a child. And uh, it's either uh, student camp or vacation Bible school. I hear that so many times, and it is so effective, and I know you'll be blessed as a way of working there, and we appreciate uh, you. I know some of you even took time off work to be a part of it, and we appreciate you so much. I want to bring up one thing that is coming up, uh, worship at the ballpark. This is August 5th. 15th at 10 a.m. We will not have anything here on campus. We're moving everything to the ballpark there at Keter Stadium on the campus of Shelby High School. Uh, we get to be a part of the, the worship gathering for the uh, Legion uh, American Legion World Series. And we get to lead out that Sunday, and we all get to get together. Our worship band will be leading. I'll be speaking that morning, and uh, we're looking so forward to that. I'd love to see about 1,000 people show up. I mean, we are sales as a church could provide about 700. So uh, I hope you'll turn out. Some of you may th say, I'm too old to go there. And uh, we'll, we'll have you great parking. We've got golf carts. We're going to sit you up high where you don't have to go downstairs. We'll take care of you. You just show up. And uh, I guarantee you it'll be a great time. So I hope you'll be a part of that August 15th. Keep that on your schedule. Well, most of us have heard the phrase, the ends justify the means. This phrase, however, is not a biblically supported principle. The phrase implies that the means to get the end to the end does not matter. All that matters is that we get to a desired outcome. Throughout history, horrible things have been done with this mentality. And we could talk about those things that were done. We could talk about the Holocaust. We could talk about all these different things where the ends, the whole idea of the ends justifies the means is not necessarily true. And we see that so many times. Now, with God, however, this is totally the opposite. The process of arriving at the desired outcome to God is just as important, if not more so. It's all about the process. It's all about what God desires to do with us on the journey. God desires for us to be an effective and faithful follower of Jesus during the process, even when we can't or even yet begin to see what the outcome will be. You see, God is interested in the whole part of the journey, the whole part. And so if you were to say, okay, what matters to God the most? I think if you were to talk to the heart of God and what we find in Scripture, it is about the process. And the process that we have looked at and uh, we would call in a doctrinal way is a process of sanctification. Is a process in which he's making us more like his son, more like his own character. And so that is God's desire. So look at the introduction. When in the midst of trials or distress... 
How do you battle the inevitable doubt and questioning when, which arises to challenge the strength and quality of your faith? How do you respond? Psalm 77 provides some specific insight into dealing with and living in the middle of distress. When the end is not, when the end is not only out of you, but also when you're beginning to have doubts, not just about yourself, but also God's intentions. You see, there are so many different ways in which God allows things to come into our lives in such a way that He is building something greater than we could ever imagine. And for many of us, some of you may be here today, you're in the midst of this period of time of distress, and you're sitting here, you don't see a solution out there, it's hard to find hope in anything other than the fact that you're still Jesus's, but the fact is, you are in a struggle. The psalmist here in Psalm 77 is crying out for help. And that's our first point this morning. I cry for help. It's literally that thing which I can think that I would think that this, the psalmist who wrote this would probably say, you know, this type thing that I'm dealing with is keeping me up at night. Really, a question for us is this. Why, right now, today, what are you crying out to God about? What is causing you possibly to doubt God? What are your questions when you do not hear from God in your distress? What wells up in you? What happens with you? The psalmist is obviously in a place of distress, and he is suffering in every way imaginable. The first way that we see that he is suffering is, number one, his emotional anguish. Emotional anguish. I want you to look at verse 1. It says, I cried out to God with my voice to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. What you're seeing here, the first part of this verse, is the deep emotional anguish that he is experiencing. He is turning to God, and that's a good thing, because many people don't turn to God. When things are not going their way, when that period of distress comes, when depression surrounds them, when they lose hope, many people turn to other things. I was so proud of Charles and Jocelyn being up here this morning sharing their story. Uh, one thing that I have always loved about our church is that we seem to be a church that we are at least moving in the, in the, in the area of, of transparency and, and just vulnerability. And, and she comes up here, Jocelyn, and just shares her story. And I think we've entered into a new level of vulnerability as a church. And I'm so grateful for that. The fact that we can come here, live our lives before one another, lean on one another, with, with us who are trying to bring God's Word to, to the situations of life and all the different things that we're dealing with. But so many times when people are dealing with emotional anguish, as they said, many do find the bottle. They find other means to, to soothe, to self-medicate. Many turn to food, unhealthy escapes, all these things. But look at where the psalmist is turning. He's turning to God. He says, I cried out to who? To whom? To God. The writer, if you look here, you will see is at the end of himself. Secondly, not only emotional anguish, but spiritual anxiety. Look at verse 2. 
He says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. He's talking about a position, a, pos a posture of, of prayer. He's crying out to God. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. For some of you right now, right here in this moment, this describes you. You're, you're troubled. Everywhere you look, there's this thing that is sitting there that distresses you. I don't know what it is. God knows what it is. But it's there. It's there. And the psalmist is basically saying, it's there. It's with me day and night. It's constantly there. Next, we see physical fatigue. If you look at verse 4, he says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. How many of you have ever been fatigued before? I mean, just really. I, I don't know that I've ever, ever experienced fatigue until maybe I was in my 40s. How many of you notice that, that fatigue seems to set in when you get a little older? I mean, when you're a teenager, when you're 20 years old, 30 years old, you can just kind of keep going, keep going. You, you're not touched by those things. And then all of a sudden, what do you, you hit? it's almost like you hit a wall. And you have to start limiting things, and you can't do things. I mean, I, I, some days I go out there, and my wife will say, why are you going out there in the hottest part of the day to do something that maybe you should have done earlier today? I can handle it. 30 minutes later, you're right. I should have got up earlier. <laughs> I mean, but it wasn't that long ago I felt like I could go on and on and on. You see, our bodies, there's so many different complexities to our bodies. And, and the psalmist here, he's talking about the emotional part. He's talking about this part he's struggling with, the spiritual part, the physical fatigue. is causing him many problems. But then he talks about mental exhaustion. Mental exhaustion. Look at verses 5 and 6. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. He's looking for anything that will alleviate the distress or the thing that he's dealing with. He's describing, and when you really put it all together, he's talking about the fact that his mind is constantly racing. Some would call this thing that he's described possibly classic depression. Others would call it burnout. And, and really, all of us are capable of getting to this point where we don't know what we believe. I want you to think about the way this psalm is laid out. The psalmist in these first six verses is basically describing how he is at the end of himself. He's at the end of himself. And it leads into something that he probably never imagined that it would lead to. He started the psalm off right. Who did he cry out to? He cried out to God. He began to think. He be but all this seemed to overwhelm him in such a way that he began, in the next part, to doubt God. To doubt God. He was really struggling here. For many of us, it leads us to this type of question. If God is so loving and so care, caring and so powerful, then why did he let this happen to me? Why did he allow that to happen to someone that I love so much? Why would he allow the suffering that we see in other nations and, and all these different things? If he's so good, he's so caring, and obviously you say he's so powerful, why does he allow this type of stuff? Why is it out there? Well, 
In Romans chapter 8, I want to put Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 28 from the message. Many of you have heard the message. It is a, a paraphrase of God's Word. But, but I, want to, I want us to look at what this is trying to tell us, because it describes the setting in which distress can come from. So let's look at this. He says, I don't think there is any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. Paul is basically talking about he is in a, uh, a period of distress. This world itself, if you leave it to its own ruin, if you leave it, leave it, leave it to, to where it just naturally plays out, how many of you have noticed that this world seems to point everything dis towards distress? It does, doesn't it? And he's talking about that. But he's basically saying the coming good times are coming. He's talking about that reflection in which God will deliver us from this world with, the, with heaven. And then he said the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. It's being held back. All around us, we observed a pregnant creation. And what he means by pregnant creation, he's talking about a laboring uh, creation. All of creation, everything that surrounds us is suffering. Everything is in distress. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pains. But it is not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing within us. We are also feeling the birth pains. We're laboring in this world. They, they, these sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why... Waiting does not diminish us, and more than waiting diminishes, uh, any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. Because here's what you need to understand. When a mother is laboring, there's hope on the other side of the labor. Wouldn't you agree with me? When that baby comes, I don't know how we say that, because now she's never going to sleep again, at least for three years. But, but I mean, there's, there's all these different things, but there's basically the hope that's coming from the labor. And the, and the way that Paul writes this, he's saying all of creation, us included, we're awaiting that time when the distress is removed, when the laboring is removed, when we will be in the presence of God. He's talking about that hope. He says we are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. There's a lot of mystery that surrounds our distress. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. How many of you have noticed that the stronger the distress, the greater heaven looks? <laughs> it's so true. The struggles of this world. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside us, helping us. Now, here's what's interesting about what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 77. Basically, what he's saying is, he's not so sure about that. He's at the end of himself. He's starting to doubt this very thing that I wrote, that, that Paul wrote. He says, if we don't know how or what to pray... He says there comes a point. We may not know anything about what we're dealing with. We don't even know how to pray about it. Here's what we can count on. He does our praying in and for us. The Spirit of God. I want you to think about that. You may be right here where the psalmist is talking about. You may be at the end of yourself. You may begin to begin to doubt God. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God doesn't check out at that moment. No, the Spirit of God is still there. The Spirit of God is still working, as we'll see in the psalmist's life. He's, the Spirit of God is going to bring him back to hope. 
But the point is, there's this time in which many of us begin to doubt. We wonder. There's a mystery associated with our distress, with our laboring. And then he goes on, and he says, that, that spirit within us is praying when we can't pray. Making prayer out of our wordless sighs or aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. Knows our pregnant condition, our laboring distressful condition, and keeps us present before God. And here's a paraphrase of Romans 8, 28. This is why we can be sure that every detail in our lives is, work, is working into something good for us who love God. The thing that we need to keep in mind is that we are living in a, in a world that is under a lot of distress. How many of you agree with that? It is. Relationships that we have many times are under distress. Difficulties, tolling. I mean, it's all part of the fallen condition. The creation's not only touched by it. The whole environment we're dealing with is not only touched by it. We are touched by it. And he's basically saying God can still bring the hope through it all. But so many of us, maybe you're here today and you're saying, no, I'm not interested in the process. I want deliverance now. How many of you have been there before? Yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? And basically the psalmist is there and he's lifting it to God. But the very God that he's lifting all this up to, he begins to doubt him. He begins to doubt him. And that's what we're getting ready to find out. There are, listen, there are still doubts in our distress which leads us, look on your outline, to a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. Now think about this. It takes great faith to believe in the character of God, his goodness, his mercy, his care, and his love for us when our circumstances become very difficult. Sometimes we forget what God's capable of. Sometimes we forget the very nature of God, his character. A crisis of faith, and many of us know this, can become just a pity party, can't it? How many of you ever been there? You ever have a pity party before God? Let me tell you where, where many, some people are. Not, maybe not all of you. Maybe you figured this out now. Many of us don't understand that God will listen to us in our pity party. He does. He, he hears us. Do you know what David, when he, a lot of the Psalms he wrote, we've already talked about this. Some of his Psalms are pity parties. Have you ever read the Psalms? How many of you find comfort in that? That he was a man later known as a, a, a man who loved God, but not only that, a friend of God. And God, who, God thought a lot of him, but he had the pity parties. We've all been there. But a crisis of faith can create many things in us. The first thing that we see that the psalmist is questioning is he basically saying, will God always reject me? Is, is there, I feel this rejection. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord cast off forever? Is he ever going to hear me again, basically? The next question he raises, will God ever care for me and bless me again? Look at the last part of verse 7. It says, and will he be favorable no more? Then the third question Will God ever show me mercy again? Verse 8, has the mercy ceased forever? How about this one? Will God do what he says he will do? Can I trust him? Verse 8, has his promise failed forevermore? How about verse 9, will God ever forgive me? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And then lastly, will God always be angry with me? 
has, his, has he in, his, in, in anger shut up his tender mercies? You see, what's happening here is the psalmist is basically, he's perplexed. God, he, if you were to say, okay, sum up everything he's saying. God, where are you? This is not the God that I thought I, I, I was worshiping. This seems different. It's led to a crisis of faith. How many of you have ever been there? Honestly, how many of you have ever been there? You've been there? Yeah, we've been there. It's amazing how many people I talk to, and the reason they don't follow God or the reason they won't give God a chance is because they claim that we say, and we're correct when we say this, God is a God of love. We tell them that God is sovereign and nothing touches our lives except through the filtered hand of God and all that. And the world's sitting out there and they're saying, well, no thanks. I look around this world and I see where all this is leading. If he's so powerful and he's so loving, then why doesn't he do something about all this? And they're frustrated with it all. And they turn from God. There are those who turn and those who never even come to the brink of faith with God because of that very argument. But we read it all through Scripture. And again, Romans 8 is trying to tell us we live in a distressing place. We live in, in, in a world that, that, that God has turned over. I mean, we, we're in the fallen condition of this world. And it leads to the mess that we find ourselves into. But God is capable of using it for great things. For great things. Next. We have a challenge to remember. The psalmist, I take from what I read here of the psalmist, he's very mature spiritually. And here's why I know that. Because when he first begins to feel the distress, when he first begins to, to have that struggle, who does he turn to first? Who's he turn to? He turns to God, doesn't he? And then along the way, he begins, listen, he begins to begin to doubt God. But then there's this challenge to remember. And nobody is sitting here telling him to do this. He comes to this on his own. He begins to look back. And the only way he could be a mature believer in the way he is, he must know the stories of God. He must know the character of God because it's there. It's in him. And we know it because of what he writes next. So there's a challenge to remember, the strategy for fighting discouragement, doubt, and distress is remembering and meditating on the character, wonder, and work of God. And the first thing we need to do is remember who he is. And that's what the psalmist is going to do. He's going to remember who God is. He's at the end of himself. He's starting to doubt God. Are you truly who you say you are? The God that I thought I knew, I'm not so sure anymore. But then he brings the proper doctrine, the proper truth to understanding the God that he serves. Look at verse 10. And I said, this is my anguish. He, rec he recognized the fact that he was speaking out of his distress. He says, this is it. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about God's sovereignty. He's beginning to see that there's something to this, that God could be up to something in the midst of his doubt. And he's beginning to recognize that. All right, skip over to verse 13. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who, who, who is so great a God as our God. 
You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. What's he talking about? He's talking about, he's reminding himself of God's greatness. He's reminding himself of God's strength. Skip down to verse 16. The water saw you, O God. The water saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up in the, the world. The earth trembled and shook. He's talking about who God is, what he is, his character, his nature. Secondly, he would remember what he has done. He will remember what God has done. Go back to verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds let me stop right there just to say this. I think a lot of times the reason we don't know what to do in our distress is the reason we can't move past it, move past our doubts, is because we don't know the Word. We don't have anything to fall back on. We don't have anything to consider since we don't know the Word. We don't take the time to, to, to bathe ourselves in God's Word, to, to meditate on God's Word, to understand the proper relationship that we have with God. And, and I'll be honest with you, most of the people who come to me for different things, there's two things that they miss, they're miss on, and, and, I, and I've told you this before. They don't see God as He truly is, they've lost sight of that, or they don't really understand who they truly are and what the struggle really is about. And the only way you get that is from God's Word. That's the only way you get it. And you got to know it. The psalmist here is proving to us he is a spiritual person. He is someone who's gone to God. He is someone who's crying out. He has spent everything he's got is spent. He, he's just in a bad place to the point he's doubting the very God that he knows so well. How do we know he knows him so well? Because of what we're reading right now. And we see his journey back. And it was all about remembering who God was because it was already there. It was something that he placed there possibly years ago. Look at verse 15. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 19. Your, your way was in the sea. Your path is in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's talking about the parting of the Red Sea. He, he's talking about that. He's remembering this. Now here's what I want you to think about. To be clear, the psalmist does not find relief, uh, excuse me, does find relief, but his circumstances have not changed, it appears. I want you to think about that. He, nothing's changed about his current situation, except the fact that he's believing better. <laughs> what does Paul say to that? Renewing of your mind, bringing your mind back. He's remembering better. He's bringing it back. Now, think of this. This is, not, this is not a change your perspective and all your problems will go away doctrine. This is not the power of positive thinking. That's not what this is. He's thinking correctly, but he's still in the throes of distress. So what's going on? His problems are still there, but it's merely a change in perspective. In, and it ends up leading him to great places of faith 
and praise. Now here's, here's where it all turned around. When studying the pronouns in the psalm, in verses 1 through 12, when things are not going well, there are 18 occurrences of the first person singular pronoun, I and me. Now, take note of that. When your vocabulary changes to I, 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 me, 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 there's a good chance you're in the middle of a pity party. There's a good chance you're making it about you. There's a good chance you're looking through the lens of life in the wrong place or at the wrong thing. And all these things are happening. So we study that. Now, there's only six references to God in those first 12, but there's 18 occurrences of the first now per, per, first uh, pronoun, person pronoun. However, in verses 13 through 20, there are mentions of God 21 times and zero personal references at all. This is what we would call a change in perspective, a process that changes our perspective. Now, let me just tell you this. The reason a lot of you are where you are today, and I'm speaking from experience, I'm not coming down on you, I've, I've had to go through it too, is because you've never got to the change of, perspect, of perspective. You don't have the proper perspective on what you're dealing with. You see, to, to many of us, and the enemy goes into this too, and the world feeds this, but there's a lot of people out there with what I would call a victim mentality. We live in a society that's trying to create a victim mentality. We really are. Everywhere you look, they're trying to convince you, doesn't matter who you are, what you're about, they're trying to convince you that you're a victim. We're not a victim. We're followers of Jesus. We're victors. We, we may be in distress, we may be uh, being squeezed, but the Bible also says we're more than conquerors. There's something far greater than what this world offers. The problem is many of our perspectives are just what is in front of us now. Well, Paul wrote Romans chapter 8, he's saying, you know something? This is tough. He admitted it. Paul admitted it. These are hard days. This is a distressing place to be at times. There were times when Paul got at the end of himself. Do you, did you know that? It's kind of hard to catch in Scripture. But we know there was a season of depression and defeat in Paul because he talks about this one church that built him back up. We all can be prone to it. But it's a change. It begins, the healing begins with a change of perspective. Our perspective changes when finding ourselves in a place of distress, when we realize the Lord has either placed us there or allowed us to be there, perhaps for reasons presently only known to Him. Now, let me tell you where a lot of you are. A lot of you know enough about theology to know that God is sovereign and nothing's going to touch your life apart from the filtered hand of God. And so where you're stuck at is, why God? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Why? Do you not care? Do you not love me anymore? Have I done something to offend you? And basically, that's where you are. And for some of you, you've been there for years. For some of you, you... you, you, you the reason you're here today is because this is what you were raised to do. You show up at church on Sunday morning. 
but you still walk in here Sunday after Sunday and you don't have the proper perspective and you're still holding on to something in which you think God is unfair. How is this? Why, why is it other people seem to prosper? Why does it seem like even the people I work with who, who don't even know you, God, seem to be so much further down the road than I ever could imagine? What is the up with that? Did you know David said the same things to God? It's all about perspective. This is not the essence of what we're going to experience when it comes to the life that Jesus has provided for us. That's coming. Right now we're in this. And it's tough. Paul said it was tough. Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, said this world is tough. That's deity talking. Let this cut pass for me. I'd just soon not go this route. Okay, God, it's part of the plan. I, I, my perspective is what you desire. Think of that, y'all. Here, you may be in a place of distress by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. I want to... Um, close. I'm not going to have time to get to the application, but the number four there, that blank is just pray. And let me tell you about prayer as I get ready to close this out. Prayer for me, you know what I found it to be? It's not only a time where I can go before God and get a better glimpse of who he is and who I really am. Prayer for me many times is just a place that I go to get the right perspective. It's always about the right perspective. And he brings me that. And, and I, want, I, want to, I want us to think about this. The blood of Jesus forgives our sins and resolves our guilt. The resurrection of Jesus frees us from the fear of death and victory over the things of this world. The presence of Jesus surrounds us in our distress. And the promises of Jesus sustains us in our doubt. And that right there is exactly what we need in this world of distress. And so this, I found this very interesting. In 1860, there was a poet and songwriter named Anna Warner. Anna's sister, Susan, was taking care of a young child that was dying. So Susan sent her sister a letter asking if she could write a poem to comfort the dying child. To this dying child, Anna began to pen the most comforting words she could think of. And here were the words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. How do words like that are comforting to the dying? Here it is. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? The Bible tells me so. It tells me about his character. It tells me about the place in which I live. The last verse, many of us don't know the last verse. The last verse says this. Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. Words that were inspired to give to someone taking care of a dying child. 
Can you think of anything worse than a dying child? And yet their words of comfort. In that terrible, painful moment, Anna believed what would bring the most comfort, and it would be for someone to remember the simple message that Jesus loves you. I want to ask you to stand to your feet right now with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Father, we just come to you right now, and we just thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the provision of what he brings. Lord, I thank you that your word is so transparent. It reveals so many of our vulnerabilities. Just as King David would cry out in his own little pity parties about his distress, Lord, you heard him out. But Lord, there always seemed to be a point in which the perspective was changed and David would go from his pity party to his time of worship. Father, I just pray for those that are gathered here today, Lord, that are in the midst of their pity party. I've been there. Lord knows you. You know I've been there. But Father, I just pray for a change of perspective. Father, I pray for those that are here today that see no hope. There's, no, there's, there's just no hope out there. Father, I pray for that one that may be self-medicating on things that, that are unhealthy, maybe drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, Father. Father, I pray, Lord, that you'll just penetrate their heart, rescue them from this self-medication by fully showing them that you are enough. Father, if there's someone here today that's never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, maybe they have no idea about some of the language that was used here today, but the only thing they know is that this is a message of hope, and they want to embrace hope today. Father, I pray you'll bring them to that place that they'll turn from their sins, turn to you and follow you all the days of their life. And Father, if there's such a one like that here today, I pray you'll give them the courage to talk to myself or another pastor before they leave here today. Father, we give this time to you. Heal our hearts. Heal our minds with a new perspective. Father, we just thank you for your provision and what you've done through your son Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.